bringing you inside the latest stories in sports business and advice from some of the best in the industry. This is BSSF's Sports Business Podcast, presented by the Business of Sports Society at Fordham. Welcome in, everyone, to Episode 5 of BSSF's Sports Business Podcast. Happy to be back with you again this week, along with Alex Waltz. And we have a new voice on the air today, Sam Davis. Happy to have you join us this week. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Super excited to talk some sports with you guys. We got a lot to cover. So, Indeed we do. And, uh, you know, it's nice to usually in the past few weeks, it's been just me and Alex, but, you know, happy to get some uh, new voices in. You'll be hearing some more as well as we go on through, through the episodes coming up, but happy to have you join us this week. And uh, as you mentioned, we have a lot to talk about. So uh, this week, Fans are being let inside for the World Series. Last week, they were let in for the NLCS. So we're going to talk about how that's being handled by Major League Baseball and some of the comments Rob Manfred made uh, earlier this week regarding uh, two new rule changes that he likes and wants to see continue. So we'll touch on that in a bit. The NBA said it preserved $1.5 billion of revenue by having their bubble at Disney. Uh, Their losses are still steep, but they did save uh, quite a bit of revenue by only putting out about 150, $180 million was the uh, final total that it came out to end up costing. Uh, Doc Emmerich, a legendary hockey broadcaster, is retiring from his work over at NBC. Legendary career, uh, was a New Jersey Devils broadcaster and also took over the national broadcasting uh, with ESPN, Fox, NBC, wherever, you know, hockey was, Doc was broadcasting many, many Stanley Cup Finals games. So, uh, but that leaves NBC with a question, who's going to take over for him? And it may be a little bit more complicated than you think. So we'll go into that. Vegas Golden Knights owner, Bill Foley, he has shed some light on some of the details of the upcoming season, probably a little more than uh, he, he should have said, uh, at least to, for public knowledge at this point, but we're going to dive into a bunch of the comments he made that, uh, you know, will hopefully give us a little sense of what this season coming up is going to be like. And lastly, we're going to talk about Steve Cohen's, uh, Mets, uh, purchase again. The first round of approvals, uh, went through. And there's a few more hurdles to go and one unexpected hurdle that could arise. So we're going to get to all that in just a bit. Uh, But we're going to go back to the top with fans going to the World Series. It's been exciting to see fans back in baseball. I'm sure the players are excited about it because um, they they were saying for so long, even with their families there, at least it was some people in the stadium. Uh, referring to earlier in the playoffs. It was some people in the stadium to watch them play, to hear some noise other than the artificial noise being made. So I'm sure they're thrilled to have fans back in the seats in Arlington. Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about normalcy so much since we started this podcast and throughout the pandemic. And baseball has kind of been that sport that's always been up and down when it came to the virus and, and dealing with it. But this feels like kind of the culmination of what they've been working towards all season, finally getting... You know, through all the bumps, through all the roadmaps and getting over all the outbreaks and finally getting to the World Series, getting a bubble, which we all know should have been the case from day one. But they finally did that. And that enables fans in the stands that enables the games to go off smoothly. And I think the playoffs have been fun for a lot of reasons. Maybe it's the expanded playoffs, which we'll talk about in a bit. Maybe it's having fans again. But I think it's really a representation of baseball getting the job done this season. That To this point, everything has gone off in the World Series, at least well, and that we do have fans in the stands and that we do have some, some sense of normalcy that wasn't there the majority of the season before that yeah I, I agree I think it's a good idea I think um, the fact that they're doing it in Arlington a brand new stadium it's it's a huge stadium there it's brand new very impressive I think it's very well suited definitely for social distancing and everything that needs to be going into having fans in a stadium um, for me as a fan watching at home um, it's not as noticeable as I expected though I, I think it's a very small crowd which is still somewhat unusual for a world series we're so used to sold out crowds, packed houses at home, let's say in LA or even Tampa Bay, even though they don't normally pack their house, but once in a while (laughs) they do, I guess maybe for the world series. But I think from a fan perspective, watching games, 
it's interesting. It's definitely, it's definitely a good sign of normalcy to have fans in the stadium, but it's not as a hundred percent normal as I expected. I mean, there's, there's certainly not as many fans as you'd normally expect in a world series game, understandably because of the uh, circumstances. I can agree with that. Um, when I was looking at the, you know, the wider stadium shot, it didn't look as full as I was expecting 11,000 people to be. Uh, but I, I will say this, it, in game seven of the NLCS, when uh, Cody Bellinger hit that uh, winning home run and that Dodgers fan caught it in right field and they were jumping around like crazy, I said, you know what, that, that's what I miss seeing a lot. You know, the fans in the stands just really enjoying their team and you know, especially that moment, like that fan caught, you know, pretty famous ball, the, the home run that sends the Dodgers to the World Series. You know, that's something he's never going to forget. Those are the memories sports makes that we've been, we've lost for eight months of this year. It feels like a lot more, but it's really been, you know, eight months of limited to no crowds that, you know, we're starting to get that back. And, you know, hopefully the fans down in Arlington are enjoying it. But one of the, interesting reports that came out um, is that on the third-party market uh, on t sites like StubHub and Ticketmaster and all that, there's usually about, you know, 2,500 to 3,000 tickets available for a World Series game in a normal year. Obviously, the prices are very different and uh, depends on the teams, depends on the cities, uh, on the secondary market. And it's about the same. There's, there's about, you know, 2,000, 2,500 tickets available for the World Series coming up, which is saying a lot considering there's only 11,000 people going in. It's not the usual 45 to 50,000. So that's going to bring the price down a bit. But something we were talking about a little bit before the show is about how um, the, the Los Angeles fans and Tampa Bay fans they need to travel from either coast to Arlington, Texas. It requires a flight because I don't think anyone's going to drive from Los Angeles or Tampa to go to Dallas. So it requires at least a flight and people don't necessarily have the means right now or, you know, feel safe doing that in this moment. And could that be a reason why we're seeing this in this moment? I don't really think we can look at the numbers that much necessarily for the exact point you mentioned there is that this is not, we all know that this decision has nothing to do with getting the fans of the Rays and the fans of the Dodgers in the stands. That's not what this is about. Uh, for one reason, like you said, they're not in a situation to do that for various reasons, but also because the league just needs to get fans in the stands in general. When you have a ballpark that's suitable for it and when you have a revenue system that depends on it, you have to do that eventually for a game as big as the World Series. They know that even if fans from Tampa Bay can't get there or Los Angeles, that this is still going to be an environment that people are going to want to go to because it's the World Series. So no matter what, you're going to have baseball fans in the stands, and that's who they're getting here. So even if it's not those core fans, as long as you have a certain demographic of baseball fans that are always going to be willing to go, going to be willing to spend the money because the pricing for these tickets has remained pretty stable. They have still charging top dollar for the World Series, even though it is a different situation because at the end of the day, there's enough demand there, regardless of who it's coming from, for people to go see the World Series. And I know a lot of people are going to jump on that opportunity even if it's not their favorite team. Yeah, I mean, if I'm a fan of the Dodgers or the Rays and I live in L.A. or Tampa Bay, I'm sorry, but there's no chance I, I go to a World <laughs> Series game. And, and that's, not, that's not just because I might not have the money to do so, but it's also because of the safety concerns surrounding it. So I do totally understand um, those fans from those different places not wanting to come. But like you said, Alex, I think baseball fans will be there. It's the World Series. It's the biggest stage. Selling tickets is smart because no matter what happens, fans are going to come. And it might not be fans from Tampa Bay or uh, fans from L.A., but it's going to be fans of the Dodgers or the Rays, or it's just going to be fans of baseball in general. And, and that's definitely good for the sport. It's definitely not hurtful. And I love seeing the fans there. For sure. And, that, and Manfred was talking about how not having any fans for the entire season would be such a beat down, not just on revenue, but on, you know, the morale for the sport that, you know, just having any amount of fans in the building would be beneficial for the league's image for, uh, you know, just, just morale around the sport, especially with the tough, tough beginning to the season this league had 
with its uh, ongoing labor disputes and probably more labor disputes ahead. Uh, but the one thing that Rob Manfred said in recent days that caught a lot of people's attention was his, him saying he wants two rules from this season to hopefully stay in years going forward. Expanded playoffs and starting extra innings with runners on second. I have two different opinions on this. I have my fan side opinion of this and the business side opinion on this. The fan in me says, I would hate for there to be expanded playoffs because you have a team like the Yankees or the Dodgers this year. You would think after in a normal year, 162 games, you would want them to at least earn the right to get a buy and not have to play in the wild card series. Um, I, I don't think it's beneficial for the, for the com competition to play to have this, have those top teams have to play in a wild card round against the lower team that potentially, and baseball is such, such a crazy sport where, you know, you can be on a 10 game winning streak going into the playoffs and all of a sudden you lose three in a row and your season's done. You know, and if you're one of those top teams. And I feel like if, you, if you're playing 162 game season, you at least have the right to get a bye before having to go play a three game series against a lower wild card team that could potentially, you know, just be on a hot streak and have to upset you. Um, same, well, it's kind of the same thing for the, uh, for the runner on second. I'm not necessarily a fan of it. Maybe I'm more of a baseball purist, as some people say. Uh, I'd rather see the players play out. The, the rest of the game and they've been doing it for over a hundred years. I don't see why it needs to change now, but uh, the business side of me loves both because especially coming out of this season where you've taken such a hit financially, you're going to need every single cent going forward for probably the next two to three years minimum. And the way to do that is by expanding playoffs because that means more television deals, more fans in the stands, more teams in it. It'll arguably keep the competition of play amongst the teams tighter, you know, especially when you have, you know, second, third place teams trying to battle out for position and, you know, the team in fourth place, normally their season's done by August, maybe not anymore. Maybe they're coming down in mid-September and they could still make a run. And That'll incentivize teams financially to invest more in their players. It'll also, MLB made a ton of money off of ESPN in this wild card series where they had games going all day, all night. Uh, ESPN loved it. The league loved it. I think that could potentially be a reason why Manfred wants to keep it. And of course, the runner on second, the game ends earlier. Manfred's always been about uh, game management and trying to lower the game, the time of play in the games. So two separate opinions on it, um, very different opinions. That's, you know, the fan side of me and the business side of me. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I, I think you make fair points. And I, I want to talk particularly about the expanded playoffs because I think all of us here realize that the second you make a decision to expand the playoffs this season, that's not going to change. I think we all knew that because like you mentioned, Nick, the, the amount of revenue that comes in through an expanded playoffs, especially at a time when the league needs the money more than ever, you're not going to throw that away. And I, I was there a problem with the original playoffs? No. But the second you add more teams, you see the benefits of it by another point you mentioned, getting the smaller markets involved. We saw teams like San Diego all of a sudden being a big story. We, that's terrific for the sport of baseball uh, at a time when it's oversaturated by the same teams. That's terrific. And on top of that, like you mentioned, the TV contracts and having more markets, that's, that's all a part of it. And, you know, I think there was no question that the expanded playoffs were going to stay. I think we're all kind of in agreement there, but the runner on second is an interesting conversation to me. I don't even know. You make up a great point. I didn't even consider about the shortening the game because that is the problem. I think most people face with baseball, but I agree with you there. It's artificial. I mean, a runner's there that shouldn't be there. It's pretty simple. I'm not going to, that's the conversation we're not going to have here, but you know, the baseball purists are not going to like that, but at the end of the day, that has nothing to do with the league and what they're going to do it because Whatever the purists say is one thing, but whatever the money says is much more important. So I don't think it's really a surprise what the league here did. And I think we all saw this coming from the start. Yeah, I mean, Manfred, with this decision, or with, with these comments at least, I think it shows that he is business-oriented. He, he's focused on the business side. He is not really listening to the, to the baseball purists. And as a fan, uh, I, I, I don't really like it. I, I think – if Manfred wants to be business oriented, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think what he needs to do is shorten the season. If he wants to do expanded playoffs, because 
or at least give some sort of buy because it, right now it's not fair. Uh, like the Dodgers uh, had, had a great season, obviously, in the World Series. Now, if they played a full 162, they would have won the division by plenty of games, I sure. think. Um, and, and you can't – it's not fair to make them play a three-game series. It, it comes down to, to two or three good or bad games. I mean, baseball is a sport where you can have a bad day. You can be a great team. You can have one bad day. I don't think it's fair to uh, to force a team like the Dodgers or a number one seed in the future to have to play a three-game series. I think if Manfred wants to keep the expanded playoffs, he's got to do something about that. And, uh, and the, the, the runner on second thing, the runner on second thing, sorry, I'm very passionate about this. It's strange, though. It's a gimmick. I mean, the runner on second thing, I can get it during the regular season. I agree. It is kind of weird. It's, it's not authentic. It's not normal. I could understand it during the regular season because that's a huge issue in baseball pace of play. It's a massive issue. They've tried a bunch of things that haven't worked. They tried the, the whole one foot in the batter's box that didn't last a week. They've tried all sorts of different stuff that just simply really hasn't worked and hasn't been enforced. This is one way to speed up the game. Definitely. It has worked, but I think you can't bring that into playoffs. I, I think uh, that, that just makes it a little too, um, too unfair for the, for the teams in the playoffs. And people are more likely to watch games in the 15th inning if it's, uh, if it's the World Series versus just a regular game in April. So I, I don't think it's super authentic, but if you are going to keep it, and I think Manfred, like you, like you said, Alex, he's going to keep it because he already made it in the first place. I think you're going to have to make sure it's only in the regular season. And then I think either shortening the season or giving a team a bye would be essential if you're going to want to do the expanded playoffs. Honestly, I think the conversation we're having right here about, you know, we see the business aspect of it and how it's very positive for the league, but there's, you know, the fan side of us that says, well, most likely this is not good for the sport as fans. I think it's a conversation a lot of people are having inside MLB because they're not, they're not deaf and, ignoring the fact that most baseball fans wouldn't necessarily be totally in favor of this. Uh, whether you're a purist or, you know, a fan of the new modern way to, to play more, even if it's, you know, more celebration, stuff like that. We've seen a lot of that this World Series, and it makes it more fun. But, you know, I think the league realizes that they can't go over those bounds of, you know, changing the game so much that, it starts to alienate their own fans. And that's the fine line they're walking now. They're trying to figure that out. How much can they push the envelope, whether that be with the pace of play, whether that be with expanded playoffs. It's been an ongoing experiment ever since Rob Manfred has come into the league office. And I think they're still trying to figure out where is that even balance of where can we make more revenue because we are very business focused, but we have to keep the integrity of the game the same. Well, if you look at just in general, the 60 game season and, and the amount of disputes, as you mentioned, that that went into it, you know, from the beginning that it's not about preserving the game of baseball, because if that was the case, we would have had a hundred game season you know, months ago. But that didn't happen because it was all about the money, uh, both from the players, but also from Manfred. I think he was kind of the, uh, the scapegoat of all that, if you will. And, and that's another uh, what, what's evident here is that he's from the beginning always been focused on improving the amount of reputation and revenue that the game makes and expanded playoffs and a runner on second is the way to do it. Even if people are going to be upset about it. Moving on from MLB, uh, enjoy the world series. It's going to be a fun week. Uh, that's going to be on Fox all week. So looking forward to watching the, the Dodgers and the Rays battle it out in the world series, but moving on from baseball, the NBA announced that they preserved $1.5 billion of revenue by having their, bubble at Disney. Uh, it helps, but at the end of the day, obviously they're still taking a massive hit. Uh, they spent $180 million for a hundred days operating and playing games at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Um, did it save money? Yes, especially with the uh, television contracts were the main big thing, which we've talked about on, on the show before. Uh, I, I think the league is now seeing, and, and Adam Silver made these comments that, you know, they're going to try and return to normalcy when it comes to the 2020-21 season, which is slowly becoming the 2021 season. And the same for the NHL, that they're kind of moving away from, you know, maybe we'll start in December. It seems like everyone's going to be starting in 2021 at this point. So 
it, it definitely did help save, you know, a billion and a half, but they took a major hit and they're going to have to try and find ways to recoup that going forward. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I think in terms of the NBA, I think that they did the absolute best that they could. I mean, no one is criticizing the bubble and what they did because they did a fantastic job. I mean, no positive cases, obviously is a huge thing. Um, I think, like you said, they made plenty of money from, um, from the TV ratings. They also did a good job with advertisements like on the court. Um, the virtual fans was a nice touch. That was kind of enjoyable and interesting. Um, it was really hard on them because I, I was seeing that I think uh, 40% of the revenue comes from um, fans coming to the game for, for the NBA. Um, and I think uh, touching on next season, I think it's going to be very difficult. I think it's possible and, and definitely having the start date in December will help, you know, another month and a half or so. But I think um, starting with fans in the stadium is going to be a lot more difficult than people expect because the arenas are a lot smaller. Um, I mean, that's kind of an obvious statement, but in the NBA, those, those stadiums don't fit as many people as a huge, uh, huge football stadium, or even like in Arlington, that big baseball stadium there. It's definitely going to be hard. I feel like there's going to be a lot less people at those games, even with fans there, it's going to be less people. Um, despite that, I don't think it's a bad, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think these players went through a lot being in the bubble away from their families, away from everything they know. Um, sure. They're in Disney world, which is, can't be the worst thing in the world, but uh, there's, there's plenty of good reasons to go back to being in the stadiums and at least introducing some fans and kind of gradually bringing it back to what we see as normal. And I think we're seeing that in the NFL and, and I think the NBA starting in Christmas, super exciting. Um, that's like, a great opening day. I love it. It's going to generate plenty of ratings and interest in the NBA starting next season. I think introducing fans at least as safely as they can is definitely a smart idea. And I hope that they work towards that. Yeah. I'm not, I don't know how confident I am that we're going to see fans next season because from the beginning, it's been the NBA being very cautious about everything. And Adam Silver has always been, it's about our players first. It's about our game first. And we'll worry about fans afterwards, no matter how many years that takes. And I think that everybody's kind of been in agreement on that. So like you said, I do think it would be good to see because the NBA took a big hit this year without fans. I think Nick and I have talked a lot about why those ratings hits came to the NBA. Seems like fans might be the answer. So the league's going to keep that in the back of their mind, but I don't think it's the priority, but I think the way you put it, Sam, that the NBA did the best with what they could is a good way to summarize it because they were the first hit by the pandemic and they were the ones that had to deal with that. You know, they had to figure out how do we get back to playing and how do we do it in a safe way? And most importantly, they fulfilled that second aspect, the safety of it. And sure, it came at billions of dollars of, of loss, but that's something that you're going to have to face in this time. There's nobody that hasn't lost, no league that hasn't lost. And the fact that the NBA was able to avoid that, you know, by putting millions into this bubble, I think is a testament to the job Adam Silver did a job that uh, testament to the job that the league did. And I think it's something that just shows the ability of the NBA to always be a step ahead of the game. I think when it comes to these type of issues, and that's an impressive number, 1.5 billion. I, I don't know how they come up with it, but I don't think we can ignore that because that's certainly a, a quite an impressive job of the league. Yeah. It starts, I think with the TV contracts and then eventually goes to, you know, other sponsorship deals and endorsement deals through that. So that's how you get that number. But um you know, I think just sitting here listening, the one thing that occurs to me is we're seeing fans mainly at football and baseball. The difference is they're outdoor sports. Absolutely. You can spread out. And obviously football stadiums, baseball stadiums are much bigger than indoor arenas. And then on top of that, you're indoors. I think that's going to be the toughest thing. And we're going to talk about it in a little bit when we talk about the NHL and Bill Foley from the Vegas Golden Knights in his interview, which is basically – you know, they're kind of waiting out. Now you're seeing the leagues kind of wait out a little bit to start their season. So that way, maybe they can start the season with 25% fans. And then maybe by the end of the season, they're up to 75%. So that what maybe by the time that we're at the Stanley Cup finals, we're at 100% or whatever it may be. They're trying to wait it out. So at least they get some revenue. Um, well, talking about talking about the, the indoor outdoor thing, though, what's interesting is the Superdome, for example, with the Saints, they're going to bring in, you know, 3000 fans or so this weekend. I think that's a good test yeah. to see how the NBA is going, to, right. going to do with that. Obviously, the size comparison isn't there, but just it's the first time I think I can remember once anyone else does that we're having an indoor fan scene. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. One, one more point, Nick. Uh, I, I wonder, like you said, um, 
if the NBA would even consider pushing their season back at all. I think Christmas Day is a great starting point. I think it's great for uh, for ratings and everything because people are going to be attracted. Christmas Day is when people really start watching basketball anyway. Uh, sure, it starts in October, but but that's always a big day for watching basketball. I wonder if the NBA is really strict to sticking with that and no fans or they would consider moving it back in order to introduce fans, kind of like the NHL is doing, which we'll look at later. I think they're considering it. And you and Alex, you brought up a good point with the Saints this weekend. I had heard reports they were considering moving over to Baton Rouge yeah. where LSU plays. Uh, they were they were considering moving their games for the rest of the season to Baton Rouge. So that way they can have 25% or 22% fans in that stadium, which that would be that would be quite a sight to watch the Saints play over, over at LSU. But um, you're right. This is the first time the fans are going into a dome stadium, even even uh, for the World Series. Uh, the new Arlington Stadium Globe Life Field has a retractable roof and the roof is open. Now, in the past, Major League Baseball's it was always a rule that in the playoffs, the roofs had to be closed uh, in case of rain. So that way they were guaranteed to get the game in. Obviously, that's not the case this year because they want it to be outdoors. So, you know, there's there's full air. You're you are outside. You have the ventilation, not inside a inside a dome stadium, inside an arena. So that's one interesting point to, to look at this weekend to see how the Saints do. So that'll wrap up our, our conversation on the NBA. And we'll come back to what the NHL is thinking from reports in a little bit similar to the NBA. But legendary NHL broadcaster uh, Mike Emmerich has announced his retirement from NBC's national broadcast of uh, NHL. Uh, he's a friend uh, of Fordham and more specifically WFUB, uh, where a bunch of us have worked or are currently working. Uh, and FUB is, has always turned out fantastic sports broadcasters. Now, Doc wasn't a uh, alumni, alumnus uh, of Fordham, but he, he's a very good friend as a contributor to the radio station for a long time. So, you know, he, he's pretty much part of our FUB family at this point, uh, along with the other greats from, from our program, where, um, you know, and he, I got to meet him when he, when he came and spoke to us. And, uh, you know, just, just the absolute nicest guy, uh, huge Pittsburgh Pirates fan, uh, biggest Pittsburgh Pirates fan you could ever imagine. And, uh, you know, just, just really cared about everyone was always willing to listen to, you know, critique anyone's tapes or, you know, and really give advice and help people. It just, just the best guy you could possibly ask for. And, you know, even me, I'm a New Jersey Devils fan. So uh, being a fan of that team, it, it meant that much more because he was the, uh, you know, the team broadcaster for many years as well. So uh, it, Seeing him retire is, is going to be hard as, as not only a Devils fan, a hockey fan. Uh, I guess you could maybe just give some thoughts on Doc and what he meant for, you know, sports broadcasting and sports media, especially in hockey. Well, there's no question. Like, I'm not even the biggest hockey fan, but, you know, always on NBC, you'd hear his voice. There's something iconic about that. And, you know, also being a local guy with the Devils. And there's no question that he's one of the most iconic play-by-play -play voices that there is. And, and we talked about this a little earlier before this, that hockey is one of those sports that are notoriously difficult to call. And, to do it with such ease and such professionalism over so many years is a testament to the type of man and the type of broadcaster that he was. Yeah. I mean, I, I read something the other day that uh, said that, that uh, doc was the Vin Scully of hockey, which hmm. I think is a good comparison to make because he is such an iconic voice for hockey. And like you said, it's so difficult to call that sport. I don't know how he does it. Um, Absolutely. He makes it, he makes it easy. And uh, I, I think it's going to be, it's, it's impossible to replace somebody like him. But, uh, Nick, I know you're going to get into uh, some mm -hmm. of the replacements potentially for him. Right, right. And the tributes were pouring in from across the NHL for, for his retirement. And, you know, one of, one of the things that caught my eye was his former color broadcaster, Chico Resch, who's, who was a Devil's Color on TV for a long time and now is doing the, the color broadcasting on radio, was saying working with Doc was like having Wayne Gretzky on your line, where – you know, you know, he's, he's the absolute best at what he does and he's always going to come through and help the team be, you know, the absolute best it can be and that there's no one like Doc. Um, and as you mentioned, Sam, now the biggest question for NBC, probably that they're, that they're facing in a long time is who's going to replace him? 
I think there's two strong contenders. One is a little more obvious, Kenny Albert. He's the radio play-by-play voice of the Rangers. He also does NFL and MLB on Fox, uh, son of the great Marv Albert. Uh, he, he's been around for a very long time, very, very good broadcaster. He's been NBC's number two NHL play-by-play man for, for a bunch of years now. I think he's the logical choice, but something that Andrew Marsh and the New York Post mentions is can't forget about Mike Tirico. Uh, and, you know, he's kind of at a bit of an impasse here where they don't know what to do with Tirico. A lot of people thought that Al Michaels would have retired by now, and, and he has, and he's still working uh, doing Sunday Night Football. Um, so, so what has NBC done? They put him as the studio host for Sunday Night Football. I don't think that's necessarily what he signed up for. Um, he's going to anchor, he has been anchoring Olympic coverage for a bunch of years now. Um, he's basically replaced Bob Costas as their, you know, main studio man, main head guy in the network. But I think the main goal for bringing him in was to be the heir to Al Michaels' Sunday Night Football is for many years he was on Monday Night Football uh, with ESPN. And that's really where he gained his popularity, really grew his brand. So now he's been at NBC for a bunch of years and, you know, they don't necessarily know where to put him. And, uh, you know, they're saying that he won't be uh, scheduled to really come on to Sunday Night Football until after the 2022 Super Bowl. That's still another, you know, two years that Mike Tirico is not going to be doing much. So the thinking is maybe they move him to hockey. I don't know, because I've, I heard him broadcast like one or two games. And my initial thought, now granted, I'm not, you know, as much into the broadcasting side. I know a little bit about it from, you know, my time working with the radio station, the sports department, WFUV. You guys are probably would know better than I. But, you know, I was listened to him and I can tell right away, you know, he's just not comfortable with hockey. But is this the move NBC makes to try and have him become the top guy? Yeah, it's interesting. And uh, to the point about Mike Tirico, I know a lot of people speak about Mike and he's obviously revered as one of the best in the industry, but I don't even think this decision for NBC comes down to necessarily hockey because Kenny Albert is that he's the hockey guy. He would be, like you said, the logical choice, but name recognition does play into this quite a bit. You have to think. And the NHL is consistently trying to, I think, attract a larger fan base and make its game more accessible to the general public because it's typically regarded as a very niche sport. And you have to think that getting a guy like Mike Tirico, you know, his voice to either games on NBCSN or the main NBC has to be a, a pull to a lot of people that like Mike because he has a big uh, follower base and a lot of people that might be interested in the sport of hockey. So I do think that factors into it quite a bit. And like you said, this is a very big decision for NBC because their broadcast rights are set to end pretty much this year or possibly next year, depending on how the timelines shift with the pandemic. So you know, who they really lock in here may not even have the national broadcast rights the way they are right now. You know, potentially the NHL will split that up, go to multiple different networks, potentially try to expand their reach even more. So it's an interesting position, I think, for NBC, not only in who gets the uh, the role between Mike and Kenny, but also in who ultimately gets the rights to broadcast the game. So I think there's a lot of play here, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point about name recognition, something I didn't even really think about. It reminds me of... Uh... It reminds me of the Red Sox when they traded uh, Mookie Betts and uh, the headliner in that deal is Alex Verdugo. And everyone's saying, how do you trade Mookie Betts for Alex Verdugo? And that's, that's the question. And that's like, that's like the same thing here with Mike Emmerich. You can't replace him. You can't replace him. So if you bring in Kenny Albert, he's a great, he's a great commentator. He's perfectly suited for the role that he needs to do, which is not to be Mike Emmerich, but to be himself and be a good hockey commentator. But everyone's going to say he, he's not a, he's not anything like the legendary Mike Emmerich. I think Mike Tirico definitely has a bigger name, kind of a better ring to it in terms of uh, of replacing him. But I agree. I don't think he's, he's he's best suited for it. I haven't really heard Mike Tirico call a single hockey game. Um, so I'm not sure how good he is. I can't speak to that. But it is incredibly difficult. It's really hard. I have heard Kenny Albert talk plenty hockey and he does a great job. He's always been a great commentator for hockey. So I think. If, if NBC really thinks about it and what's going to truly gather fans in and then being a commentator is an extremely important part of watching a game. I know when I watch a game, I'm always listening and listening to what these commentators are saying. And if the guy doesn't sound confident, doesn't quite know what he's doing, it's going to show. And I'm, I'm not going to be as, as interested as, as listening to someone like Kenny, who's 
got a great handle on the sport, knows what he's doing and has done it for years. That's why I think, honestly, he's, he's going to be the best fit. Will they go that way? Who knows? I think Tariko kind of being in limbo might, might make them sort of lean towards him. Um, but who knows what's going to happen. It's definitely interesting to look at down the road. Yeah, we'll see it play out. Uh, you both bring up good points about the name recognition. Like, like Sam said, it's not something I, I thought of before. But, um, you know, I think there's – what was I going to say? You know, there, there are other people in line, like, like Albert and, you know, you could say Brendan Burke and John Forslund that know the game. And at the end of the day, you know, the hockey fans are going to want someone who knows the game. You know, if Tariko ends up getting the nod, then I say, you know, study up and work really hard at it. Because I think that the hockey community, they, I can say as a Devils fan, the Devils haven't made the playoffs in a bunch of years and haven't really won many playoff series, but I still watch the entire playoffs. So I'm listening to the national guys throughout, you know, an entire two-month period. And a lot of hockey fans are like that, where they're not just rooting for their team. They enjoy watching the playoff games. I can say, like baseball, I'm not necessarily watching every single game in the World Series. I'm casual. I'm more of a casual fan once the once my team is out. So I think hockey's different in a sense that um, there there needs to be some sort of loyalty where you know they know the broadcaster knows the sport. If Tariko comes in blind, and I'm not trying to have any hit on him he's a very talented broadcaster and you know he he's mainly known for football though he needs to really you know batten down and get to know the sport in and out maybe get some help from doc because like you said there's no replacing doc i think i saw someone actually during one of the stanley cup final games they wrote down every single phrase he used to describe the puck entering the offensive zone and it came out to about 30 different phrases, 30 different adjectives that he used to describe the play, which is remarkable. And especially in a fast paced sport like hockey, that's just like the, a little bit more of the technical side uh, of doc that, you know, makes him so talented that, you know, you're right. You aren't going to replace them, but are you going to be able to, is his replacement going to at least know the sport and, you know, have a respect for the sport. Ho hopefully, if it is Tariko, then I say, you know, really work hard at it. And hopefully, you know, you'll, you'll be good at it. And eventually you can take over Sunday Night Football. But uh, I think to me, Kenny Albert's the, more of the obvious choice. So with that, we're going to move on to some different hockey news uh, concerning Vegas Golden Knights owner Bill Foley. Now, uh, he had an interview with uh, – KSHP, uh, one of the uh, Vegas sports radio networks, and he gave a lot of information that the league probably was not prepared to share. Uh, he talked about a bunch of things with them, uh, including uh, starting the regular season on February 1st, including a 56-game season in four months. It's, even just thinking about that, that's basically uh, a game every other night. That's a very tight schedule for, for any team. So even that would be a little hard. And hopefully they're saying that'll hopefully get them back on pace with the regular schedule. Uh, when talking about the uh, Nate Schmidt trade after, after signing Alex Petrangelo from St. Louis, um, he was talking about trading Nate Schmidt to Vancouver. And he said, I, I'm not concerned since they'll be in the Canadian division. There's a Canadian division. You know, that's news to all of us. So, so he shared a lot of information in that interview that really had me thinking about what, what next season for the NHL is going to bring and maybe is a window into what the other leagues are starting to think too because you know the MLB is starting to think about this. You know the NBA is starting to think about this. Uh, how are they going to proceed in next season? And what this really tells me is, you know, if you're having a February 1st start, initially they were talking about December 1st. Then the talk was, you know, winter classic January 1st. Now the owners are saying, well, February 1st. But why did we move two months? Now, for some, that was the salary cap issue. That's not necessarily an issue in the NHL. They already said the salary cap is going to stay the same. Won't go up, won't go down. So that's not an issue. They don't have any labor dispute issues. So what's the holdup? I think the holdup is they're trying to prolong 
the start of the season so that way they can get fans in into the, the arenas. Uh, I read somewhere, and I forget which team executive said this, but one, but one of them said, I want to say it was from Arizona, the Arizona Coyotes, was, was talking about how if they don't get fans into the, the arenas, many teams are not going to make it through this season financially. And we, we had talked about that previously a little bit, but now we have some kind of concrete evidence that that's really true, that they're not going to be able to make it through a 56-game season if there is no fans. They need some form of gate revenue, which we've been talking about for God knows how long already. But it's really true that that's really the main key at this point. You know, the TV deals are going to be there. You know, the sponsors are going to be there, especially once the fans coming in. You know, the sponsors are going to be there. It's more about getting those fans in. So now they're trying to prolong it to February to see, all right, maybe some people will start getting a vaccine. You know, if, if, if the vaccine comes out uh, towards the end of December, maybe by the beginning of February, we can start, you know, fans who've been vaccinated or have been tested and can go in and uh, go to these games. I think that's really what the focus is right now for the NHL. And Bill Foley shared a lot of that with us in that uh, Vegas sports talk radio interview. Yeah, it's interesting because I think to this point, the NHL and the NBA were on the same page. They signed a lot of agreements, had a lot of conversations of we're going to you know, follow the same timeline. We're going to start our seasons in December around the same time. And all indicators from the NBA have been that that's going to be the case. And here, look, none of this is confirmed. We do have to remember that these are just inclinations, but this is some out there stuff from what we've been hearing these past few months in terms of where the NHL is going to go. And I completely agree with you. I think there is no way that you're going to be shortening the season by a decent amount because 56 and 82 are, are nowhere near each other. You're only going to be doing that. If you have this hope that you're going to get fans in the stands, return to your local markets and get some sort of revenue flow that, uh, you know, surmises that 20 something missing games there. So you have to think that that's exactly what the NHL is thinking here. And there's been a lot of just discussions in general about, how the NHL is going to recoup a lot of that revenue. And I think perhaps if fans are the best way to do it, shortening the season does make sense. I'm interested how that's going to impact the integrity of the game because it's not a huge difference, but if it's something that does serve the NHL well, perhaps brings a little more intensity to the season and that might actually be a good thing. So we're in I'm interested to see if they do end up going with a 56 game season, how that ends up impacting the game into the future. If this is something they're going to stick with, or perhaps it's just a way of you know recouping some lost time here and getting fans in the stands. Yeah, just like uh, just just like Manfred in the MLB, I, th I think the uh, the NHL is, is definitely sort of focused on um, on the business side and getting fans into the stands. I think um, from an initial fan perspective, um, New Year's Day sounded like an interesting thing for the NHL. I mean, it's a big day for hockey anyway. Um, starting then, just like the NBA starting on Christmas Day would be very interesting. Um, this kind of comes out of left field. I think it's kind of comical because. I don't think he was supposed to say this much, like you said, Nick, and he definitely wasn't supposed to open his mouth and say all this stuff, but it's good for us to talk about. I mean, uh, I think um, letting fans in the building is definitely going to be uh, something positive for the intensity. Hockey is a huge sport on intensity. I mean, the, the fans, especially in playoff games, that was honestly might've been the sport. I miss fans in the playoffs the most because mm -hmm. of how impactful hockey playoff fans are. I mean, they really go nuts. And sure, there's going to be limited fans, and obviously you have to social distance and everything. Nothing's changed with that. But I think letting some fans into the stands will definitely help kind of that intensity appeal that, that the NHL has and uh, definitely maybe getting some re more revenue flowing there. And I think the Canadian division, uh, talking about the different divisions, is definitely another smart thing. Um, it definitely helped the, uh, the MLB with what they did and kind of keeping it within the division. Um, travel between countries is even more complicated during this time. Um, the uh, MLB only had to deal with one team in the Blue Jays, but, but obviously the NHL has plenty of teams in Canada. So they're going to have to deal uh, dealing with that uh, travel between Canada and the United States is something that seems easy when you think about it, but in this circumstance is very difficult. So I think making those divisions and kind of uh, limiting travel um, if they're going to have fans would be extremely important. And I think uh, definitely will help the intensity of the sport as a whole and make, make it a little more interesting for the fans to watch. Yeah. I mean, I think you make a good point with the uh, crossing countries. This is a league dependent on both Canada and the United States. Sure. Uh, you know, you could say arguably the fan base is bigger in Canada, even though they only have eight, eight teams now or seven or eight teams. And then, 
the U.S. as all the rest of the teams, a, a large percentage of the league is in the United States. And a lot of the fan base is in Canada. The, the TV rights deal in Canada is worth a lot more than it is in the United States. And another thing, you know, Foley had mentioned was, you know, the working with their part, partner NBC, because they don't want to run into a situation where the Stanley Cup is happening at the same time as the Tokyo Olympics, because now we know the Tokyo Olympics are happening. The last thing the NHL needs is the Stanley Cup to be happening the same time the opening ceremony is. And obviously NBC paid a lot more to have the Olympics on than, than the NHL. So what's, what's going to happen now? Are you going to be putting uh, the Stanley Cup finals on USA Network? That's not going to go over well. <laughs> you know, and that's a viable possibility if, you know, the NHL season rolls into the Olympics. And you also have to think about further than that, the Winter Olympics in 2022, because now in this most recent CBA deal they just signed, the league committed to starting the process to get players back into the Olympics for the 2022 Olympics. You can't have you know a conflict with the summer olympics that delays the season and then go into the following season and have another delay because of the winter olympics because your players are there i think you got to even be thinking further to 2022 at this point and you know that's why he brings all this up and uh, just one more point on the uh, canadian division that i was mentioning earlier and forgot to finish up my point so the MLS has been dealing with this too. They have three teams in Canada and they've initially elected to have just a Canadian division play, you know, basically six games among the Canadian teams. And then they decided for the next round of games that they had, you know what, they can't just keep playing each other. They got to, uh, you know, come down to the States and we'll find places for them. So now you have a team like the Montreal impact playing at Red Bull arena in Harrison, New Jersey, uh, What's going to happen with that dynamic of the international travel? Or is there going to be a Canadian division? I know hockey fans have been begging for that for years and how fun that would be to see. Uh, even as an American, I would love to see that. But even in that situation, you're not necessarily limiting travel. I mean, you have teams flying from Vancouver to Montreal. That's, that's the equivalent, more than really the equivalent of teams traveling from LA to New York for regular season games on a, on a regular basis. So I don't even know if that plan necessarily limits travel, but it, it, it definitely would solve the problem of, you know, what do we do with these Canadian teams if the border is still closed going forward, which is a very likely possibility. And one more point on the NHL, not having to do with Bill Foley's interview, but in recent days, it's been leaking out that a lot, each team is gonna be getting a fourth jersey a retro jersey that each team is getting designed by Adidas. Now, Adidas has always uh, produced a lot of alternate jerseys and the league has been pushing them a little bit more. But now you're seeing a full scale, the beginnings of a full scale operation to have every team in the league get a fourth extra jersey. And that will drive jersey sales much higher and gain extra revenue. I think it's a smart plan. Uh, I think the fans see through it that this is the reason why, but I think they're understanding of it. And I think the fans are always, always excited to see New Jersey's uh, the opportunity to, uh, you know, watch their team play in these limited time jerseys. Uh, I've heard it's going to be a lot between rivals. So you'll see it when, you know, the Penguins play the Flyers or the Devils play the Rangers or, you know, whoever it may be, Toronto plays Montreal. You're, you're going to see it come up in those rivalry games, which I think is a really smart idea because that way you can get, you know, the fans always love rivalry games, want to get involved. So if that's, you know, buying a new, a new Jersey where, you know, Oh, team wears it when we play our rivals, you know, that could really be a great move to try and recoup some of the revenue lost. I think it's a great idea. There's no downside to it. That's for sure. And I mean, any way that you can recoup that small amount of revenue, even if jerseys are going to do it and, you know, I don't know the exact numbers on jersey sales, but you have to think that we talked about, you know, looking at the top 10 jersey sales last week. That's a significant piece of revenue outside of fans and outside of uh, TV deals and things like that. You know, that's probably the number one connection fans have to the game, especially in this time that we're dealing with right now. And I wonder, I don't know if anybody has numbers on this, of how jersey sales have changed during this pandemic. I'm just curious because that's something that we have to look at, I think, because getting that fourth jersey out there is definitely going to make some, some sort of a difference and it doesn't hurt the league in any sort of way. Yeah, I mean... I, I think uh, I think it's a great idea. I, I would uh, also be interested in seeing jersey sales during this time. I feel like a lot of fans buy them 
when they go to games. So that would be interesting. And it might be taking a little bit of a hit like everything else during this time. But that doesn't mean that this isn't a great idea because I think um, retro jerseys are super cool looking, uh, super awesome to wear. Um, I think fans are definitely going to be attracted to, to wearing these, especially uh, those big rivalry games. People are going to be watching. They're going to see those jerseys and think, I want that, um, as opposed to their normal jersey where that might not stand out. Um, you already have more people watching rivalry games than regular games in general. You put a game on national TV and you give them those, those retro jerseys, boom, you're going to get quite a lot of sales, I think. So overall, it's a great idea for uh, obviously, like, like every, uh, every league struggling during this time, that will help in any way possible. I think it will definitely help. Absolutely. A smart idea. Uh, I think, I think it's very good and, you know, props to Adidas for working on it with the NHL. Uh, they, they put out some pretty good and also some not great uh, alternate jerseys. Uh, look is. at one of the stadium uh, series games from last year with uh, Colorado and LA, not necessarily uh, the pinnacle of uh, alternate jerseys, but you know, they have produced some great ones. Uh, over the years. I mean, Vegas already came out with a new third jersey with the gold that looks really good. Uh, and now they're going to be, all these teams are going to be getting, in some cases, fourth jerseys. So it's a smart idea. I think, you know, credit to the league for kind of getting on this trend. Um, it'll be very helpful for them going forward. And last thing we're going to talk about just just briefly, we, we talked about it in more in depth in, in the past, but uh, Steve Cohen has now gotten uh, initial approval by uh, the Major League Baseball's ownership committee to go forth with the sale. Uh, if, if the committee, ownership committee approves it, most likely the owners themselves, though collectively will approve it, most likely that sale will happen after the World Series. And uh, that was broken by Sportico uh, yesterday. So the Mets deal should be wrapping up but another interesting point that was brought up by one of our good friends Dan Lust who's a Fordham alum and uh, sports law writer for, for Forbes is there's there's a clause inside the Mets deal with the Cohen family from 2006 when they initially bought the land for City Field which was the city and specifically the mayor had the legal right to either stop or halt any sale that wasn't approved by the city. Now, I feel like if de Blasio actually did try and block a sale of the Mets, there would be Mets fans with pitchforks and torches outside his house. <laughs> However, I don't think he'll block it, but it's something to consider when, when you're talking about uh, this potential deal that there could be an extra hurdle here past even the MLB owners. Most likely the MLB owners will approve it, but is this now an issue where we have to think more about Bill de Blasio as the mayor of the city and if he approves this sale or not, because this is a whole new hurdle that just got thrown in. I'm not really going to entertain that conversation of him rejecting the Cohen deal because I think we all know it's good for the team and good for the city, but it is interesting because it's part of a larger conversation that we kind of got into last week, just about the role that sports teams can play in terms of a city. You know, I think we've talked about it a lot with college football, how like these schools are pretty much the, the ecosystem that generates around these towns. You know, there's nothing there without college football. And I think we're seeing something similar here with baseball, that the fact that the sale of a team has to go through the mayor of the city, because that's how much of an implication it has on the city's finances. I think that's just a really fascinating development. And, you know, it's interesting. I don't see any way that he says no to this because obviously Cohen is a saving grace for the Mets and this is billions of dollars going to the team, to the city, and it's going to bring so much excitement to the Mets that haven't had that for a long time. So I'm not worried about it, but it's an interesting uh, wrench to throw in there because there's never enough of it with the Mets. Yeah. I mean, it's like looking into this has been very interesting for me because I feel like I've learned a lot just about the whole process in general of buying a team. I mean, you think about it and you hear about the deal and you think, okay, it's over, but it's not. I mean, there's so many different layers and levels and hurdles that, that Steve Cohen has to go through to buy the team. I, I don't think I'll have any trouble going over them, but it's definitely interesting. And to your point, Alex, it's also very fascinating how, how big of a role the Mets play in New York and how big of a role uh, colleges and professional sports teams play in their city. I mean, it can be a huge, uh, a huge part of the city. And obviously de Blasio would be pretty stupid, I would say, to, uh, to uh, decline Cohen. I think it's definitely great for the Mets and great for New York baseball as a whole. 
Uh, I agree. I, I don't think there's any problem, uh, you know, getting this approved. But it, it is interesting to note that, you know, the mayor of the city has this power that it was actually negotiated out in the deal that the city has some control over what the team does. I think that speaks to the economic power that sports brings to a city, especially a city like New York, where you have the most valuable teams in the country and potentially even the world. When you look at some of the bigger teams like the Yankees, Giants, and the Knicks, you know, they're three of the top 10 teams by value in the world. So three of them are concentrated in one city. That shows how much of an economic driver those teams are to the city itself. So just an interesting tidbit to note there. And we'll wrap it up with our games of the week. Sam, your, your first episode, so I'll let you start it off. All right. I got the, uh, the biggest game on everyone's mind, I would say. Game two of the World Series tonight, uh, 808. We have Blake Snell and, and Gonsolin going up against each other. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb. Uh, the Dodgers looked great last night. Um, uh, Kershaw was phenomenal. He definitely pitched against the whole playoff Kershaw idea that has uh, definitely plagued him for quite a long time. Um, the Dodgers looked great. Their offense looked good and had a big explosive inning. But I have the Rays tonight. I, I do have the Rays. I think Blake Snell is going to pitch very well. I think um, the offense will, will figure it out, get back on track. Facing Kershaw last night was a tough task. Um, they couldn't once they once once the first inning was over, they had two runners on it and uh, nothing happened. I was like, oh, here we go. He's going to get in a groove and it's game over. And that's definitely what happened. But um, I, I've got the race tonight. But either way, it's going to be a it's going to be a good series and fun to watch. I do agree with you, but the good news is it's still coming out on a Thursday, so we'll have receipts and we can uh, we can eye up here how accurate <laughs> Sam is. But I'm gonna yes. I'm gonna head over to the NFL uh, Sunday four o'clock Seahawks and Cardinals. Bit of a random one, but I don't know. I've been watching a few more NFL games as of late, and season's starting to pick up some pace. I think these are two of the Seahawks, one of the best teams in the league without question. I think the Cardinals are such a question mark, but uh, shout out to Fordham alum Chase Edmonds playing terrific. Uh, Kyler Murray looks great, and I think this is going to be a good one. Cardinals in an upset. Yeah, shout out to our Fordham player, Chase Edmonds, who I was at the game last year when he decided <laughs> to go off on the Giants for three touchdowns. And I mean, we were, I had to be excited as, as a, as a Fordham alum or Fordham student and him being a Fordham alum. So, but at the same time, it kind of, kind of hurt to watch my team go down with the three touchdowns uh, to the rookie last year, but he's having an off season and the Cardinals, they did well against the, the Cowboys uh, on Monday night football. I got the return of the big 10. Finally, big 10 football is back. The, the primetime game is going to be the Michigan Wolverines and the Minnesota Golden Gophers. Uh, that'll be on ABC and 7.30 East. Uh, this is going to be a tight game for me. I mean, in the rankings there, Michigan's 18, Minnesota's 21. Michigan comes in as the narrow favorite, about three and a half point favorite. Uh, ESPN has their uh, football power index at them winning 56%. I think it's going to be tight. I think... Michigan goes on the road and wins, but it's going to be very tight. Uh, if you look at the rest of their season, they still have to play, you know, obviously Penn State, Ohio State. Their season is not does not get any easier. I think they will win on the road, try and build up some hype, and then eventually they're going to have to run into Penn State and uh, Ohio State, and they're going to, you know, face the reality that they I don't think they're going to be making the playoff or, or the Big Ten game this year. I think they face the reality week one. I take Minnesota. Okay. <laughs> Why not? I think this game can go either way, but sure, I'll take sure. Michigan. Yeah, it's a tough, tough schedule for Michigan. Michigan definitely. Ohio State's going to give them if they even get there in a chance to make the playoff. It's going to give them a run for their money. Who wins the game? Uh, who wins Michigan Minnesota? Or who wins Michigan Ohio State? Well, that's obvious. Michigan Minnesota. I'll take Minnesota. There we at, at go. Home. At home, yeah. I'll take Minnesota. There you you convinced me, Alex. I'm sorry, Nick. All right, we'll see. Yeah, Minnesota's going to put up a tight fight. It's uh, going to be close. Coming in. If last season against Penn State was any indication, uh, you know, Minnesota's going to put up a very tough fight at home. They have a you know, great crowd, great stadium. At one point, the Vikings were even playing there uh, while their stadium was being built. So, you know, I, I think Minnesota has a good advantage at home. They're going to keep it close. I'm still going to pick Michigan, but it's going to be a tight game. So that'll wrap it up for 
our fifth episode here of the BSSF Sports Business Podcast. Thanks for joining us and listening in today. And I want to give my thanks to Alex and our newcomer, Sam, this week. So thanks for tuning in. Have a great week, everyone. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Fordham Sports Biz and our new website, www.bssfordham.org. We'll see you next week.